Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Okay, we continue the Sedra of Toledot and the story of Yitzchak, and it's about to be the story of Esav and Yaakov. And what we've just learned at the end of Perak Kafvav is that Esav, when he was 40 years old, uh, Rashi makes the point, like his father, he got married to two wives. Um, and we then read in Pasuk Lamad Hay, V'tihiena morat ruach le'yitzchak ulerivka. And these wives were a morat ruach. Uh, we're not quite sure what that is, but it's not going to be good. And Rashi tells us, marat ruach, loshon hamra'at ruach, an expression of hamra'at ruach. So it hasn't helped us very much because we're not quite sure what mara'a, memresh aleph, is. And then Rashi says, kamo mamrim hayitem, like the word mamrim, when Moshe castigates the people um, and saying that you have been mamrim, uh, it also occurred in yesterday's Sedra in Chukat. No, it's next week's Sedra in Chukat. Um, and yesterday's Sedra, actually. Um, anyway, and it means rebels. So Hamra'at Ruach is a spirit of rebelliousness. And then Rashi goes on to say, Kol hayu All of their deeds, referring to these two wives, was to the hachis, was to anger and to grieve. And then the next word is and we'll come to that in a minute. So what is Rashi doing with Marat Ruach? What is the problem with Marat Ruach? Well, I think the problem with Marat Ruach is first of all, we don't know what it means. So Rashi has to help us. And Marat is related to uh, Meri. Uh, actually, the root is Memreish Yud, which means to rebel. So these two wives were doing something rebellious. But the problem in the Pasuk, and apart from not knowing what the words Marat Ruach mean, is the number, the Tiena is plural, Marat Ruach is singular. So if Marat Ruach is the subject, then it should have a singular verb, but we have a plural verb. So the plural verb, the Tiena, must refer to the two women. So they were Marat Ruach, which Rashi expresses as their actions were to anger and to grieve. In other words, they displayed collectively a spirit of rebelliousness. So by telling us that Marat Ruach is Loshan, um, Hamra'ot Ruach, and then exemplifying that by saying they were Kolma Asehem Hayula Hachis Ula Itzavan, it's telling us that we read the Pasuk as they were, brackets, acting in a, close brackets, spirit of rebelliousness. And then Rashi says, Uli Yitzchak Ula Rivka, that's the end of the Pasuk, says Rashi, Shahayu of Dot Avodazara, that they were worshipping Avodazara. So you can take this in one of two ways, uh, and I actually prefer the second way, which I'll come to in a minute. The first way is to say that Shahayu of Dot Avodazara is really a summation of what they were doing. Having said, Kolma Asehem, Hachis, all of their actions was to anger and was to grieve. And what was all of their actions? They were serving Avodah Zarah. That's, that's really what was happening. And that sums up what we've just said about this Hamra Adruach. However, um, you can actually point out that that doesn't really work because the first part seems to actually contradict the second part. 
Rashi says in the first part, Kolma Asehem, comprehensively, everything they did. They got up in the morning, they had a rebellious nature. They got up in the, they, they went to bed in the evening, they had a rebellious nature. All their interactions, it must have been a difficult household. You've got Yaakov probably sitting learning Torah. You've got Esau doing whatever Esau does all day, which is probably not very nice. And you've got these two wives who are in the same house as Yitzchak and Rivka, and they are upsetting Yitzchak and Rivka in all of their actions. And then it says, then Rashi says, it was one action, Shahayu of Dotavodazara. So again, as I said a moment ago, you can say that of Dotavodazara is a way of life, if you like, which incorporates all actions, or you can say it's two separate things. And I think Rashi is looking at something which we don't often spot, and that is the trot, the, the notes on this Pasuk. Because if you look carefully, there is a break between the word Ruach and between the word Leyitzchak. And there's an asnachta under the ruach. And then it says, as if it's two separate clauses. And I think Rashi, this is one explanation, maybe it's a little bit stretched, but I actually think it works very well. Rashi is seeing this as two separate pasukim or two separate stories. One is, there was a marat ruach, and that was comprehensive. That was angering, uh, that, that, that was being very rebellious in everything they did. And there was something else that they did. And that was that they worshipped the Vodazara. And that was particularly painful to Yitzchak and to Rivka, more than anything else. So whether they get up in the morning and they're rebellious and whether they go to bed at night and they're rebellious, that's one thing. But to Yitzchak and Rivka in particular, there was one thing above all, Shahayu of Vodazara. And that really, I think, is, is a nice explanation because it explains what otherwise would really be a contradiction in Rashi. Are they doing everything to rebel or are they just doing one big thing, which is Shahiyu of Dotavodazara? And I'd like to suggest that that's the, uh, that was what was unique for Yitzchak and for Rivka. Uh, incidentally, um, another point is the repetition of the Lamad, Le Yitzchak, O Le Rivka. It could have read Le Yitzchak, sorry, Le Yitzchak, the Rivka, that they were um, angering. Or, or they were doing a Vodazara, which was painful to Yitzhak and Rivka, Yitzhak and Rivka being a single unit. But you know what? You could argue that they weren't a single unit. And again, this fits in with Rashi, that the last part of the Pasuk, when it comes to interaction with Yitzhak and Rivka, is all about a Vodazara. And you could say that Yitzhak and Rivka reacted to a Vodazara differently. Why would they have reacted to a Vodazara differently? Let's make this sheer interactive. Any ideas? I'm looking at these masked faces. Ah, very good. Okay, so, and we we'll, might see this later as well, that we can suggest that Yitzchak's reaction to Avodah Zara was more negative, was more shocking than Rivka's reaction, because as Abiyah says, Rivka grew up with Avodah Zara. Rashi made that point at the beginning of Tolda, that what a Sadeka she was, because she had a brother who was over at Avodah Zara. She had a father who was over at Avodah Zara. She grew up in a town which was over at Avodah Zara. Yitzchak grew up in Abraham Avinu's house. So for him, you can imagine it was even more shocking. So that fits nicely that Rashi says when it comes to le Yitzchak, u le Rivka, implying two different reactions, that's a Vodazara, which would have generated those two different reactions. Or you can say something uh, not actually contradictory, but uh, I, I sort of tried to say this before, that when it comes to a Vodazara, 
that's going to be particularly hurtful to Yitzhak and Rivka more than to anybody else. So anybody else who might have been hanging around, not that there were many hangers around to Yitzhak, unlike Abraham, but to anyone else who was in the household, it could be that if they were Obed of Odazar, that wouldn't have been so terrible. But to Yitzhak and to Rivka, it was definitely terrible. And then you can add it to Yitzhak and to Rivka in a different way. It was terrible. Okay, now we come to Perak Lamad Vav. Um, as I say, the chapter divisions are not of Jewish origin, and we don't have to say there's a big break between the previous passage and the next passage. In fact, it would be better not to read it as one. But Lamad Vav introduces the big story of Yaakov and Esav and the Bracha and so on. And it starts like this. Pasuk Aleph. And it was when Yitzchak was old. And his eyes grew stricken from seeing. In other words, he had partial sight or even no sight. And he called Esau his big son. And he said to him, Beni. My son, Vayome Elav Yineni. And Esau replied, Here I am. So Rashi famously has a lot to say about Yitzchak's eyesight. He actually has three things to say about Yitzchak's eyesight. And before we see what they are, let's just ask why does he need to say anything? After all, we know that when people get old, their eyes fail. How do we know that? Who do we know that from in Tanakh, in Chumash Barashas? Somebody gets old, his eyes fail? Yaakov. So Yaakov, who I was going to say is a young man at this story, he's not actually young. He's 63 years old, as Rashi proves later on. But when Yaakov was much older, when it was time for him to give bracha to Ephraim and Manasseh, he couldn't see properly. Okay, we can talk at length about how one was a sort of reaction to the other, because uh, uh, Yitzchak, as, uh, Yitzchak wants to give a bracha and Yaakov swaps himself for Esau and when Yaakov gives the bracha to Ephraim and Manasseh he also swaps and he gives the primary bracha to Ephraim who's the younger son not to Manasseh a very um, obvious somehow uh, repetition in some respect of what Yaakov had done himself with Yitzchak but that's not for us now so it happens to be a fascinating topic anyway what does it say there in Memchet Pasuk Yud Enei Yisrael Kavdu Mizokein the eyes of Israel, Yaakov, became uh, heavy from old age. But it doesn't say that here. It says Yitzhak got old, but it doesn't say that his eyes were stricken from old age. So unlike Yaakov, and I think perhaps this is the driver, with Yaakov, we have a very different description. But here it doesn't say that. So it must be something else. It's also the point that although the Pasuk says Yitzchak got old, he wasn't very old. How old was he? Should be able to work it out. Rashi's going to tell us, by the way, but you should be able to work it out. What? 123. 123. Very good. How'd you work that out? 60. He was 60 when Yaakov was born. And I just told you that Rashi's going to prove that Yaakov was 63 at this point. So Yitzchak is 123. No spring chicken, you might think. However, at what age does he die? 180. So Kanai Nari's got many years left. So he's not old and weak and falling apart. So two points, which are really the same point. The Pasuk doesn't say that his eyes were weak because he was old. It doesn't say why his eyes were weak at all. So Rashi wants to tell us why his eyes were weak. 
three answers. And so he says, with the smokes, smoke of these. What's the smoke? What's these? So these are the wives, and the smoke is the smoke of Avodazara. By the way, the uh, Kliakar says it must be that they did it secretly. The wives worshipped Avodazara secretly. It cannot be that Yitzchak and Rivka would actually mummish have them in their house without putting a stop to it, which I think makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, it sort of disagrees with what Rashi said, well, the way we explained Rashi in the previous verse. Um, and it also allows you a possibility that they're like burning things to Avodazara in secret and the smoke is there and the smoke is having an impact. Okay, that's the first explanation. The second explanation. When Yitzchak was bound on top of the altar, and his father wanted to slaughter him, at that moment, the heavens opened, and the ministering angels saw the Hayubochim, and they were crying. And their uh, tears descended, and they fell on his eyes, i.e., they fell from heaven, the tears of the angels, onto the eyes of Yitzchak. And therefore, his eyes were weak. Another explanation. So, if you're counting up to number three, in order for Yaakov to take. The brachot. So, in other words, there's a, there's a certain amount that's been preordained. Hashem knows that Yitzchak is planning to give the bracha to Esau, and Hashem wants to bring it about that the bracha goes to Yaakov. Uh, although Rashi never explains this, but others do, that Hashem, continuing this idea, wants the bracha to go to Yaakov through an act of apparent trickery rather than sort of find a way to persuade Yitzchak to give it to Yaakov, or maybe that wouldn't have happened because Yitzchak's got free will, maybe Hashem wouldn't have interfered in that, but whatever. The third explanation is Hashem creates uh, a blindness in Yitzchak so that Yaakov can end up getting the bracha. Okay, three explanations. Why do we need three explanations? So there's lots of ways of answering this. Um, the first thing is to note, um, there's an obvious problem with the first answer. What's the obvious problem with the first answer? Um, that Yitzchak's eyes became weak, but Ashanan shall elu, because of the smoke of these, i.e. Very, very good. So the first problem, um, there's, there's many ways of explaining this, this tripart answer, but we're going to go through one, basically. The first problem is the first answer doesn't explain why Rivka's eyes aren't affected. The second and the third answer do. Why do we need the first answer? What does the first answer answer quite nicely? The first, what? The previous, the previous Pasuk, yes. It, it, it explains the Smichot Parashat. Rashi doesn't ask why are these two Parashat joined together. He doesn't usually ask that explicitly, but often he will be explaining sometimes explicitly and sometimes implicitly why the two Parashat come together. And this explanation, the first word, very nicely links the previous Pasuk. Um, Okay, the second explanation. Um, second explanation explains why it was Yitzchak alone and not Rivka. But let's talk a bit more about the second explanation. It's quite famous, it's quite well known, it's quite poetic. 
it's, it's quite poignant that Yitzchak's on the altar and the tears are coming down from Shemayim. By the way, um, it, I've heard many people say that this is expressing that because Yitzchak is so close to Shemayim, Yitzchak is the Ola Tamima, Yitzchak is the one who becomes a burnt offering, a perfect burnt offering. And therefore, what this story is saying metaphorically is he's so close to heaven that he can't see the difference between Esau and Yaakov. His eyes are weakened. I find that quite pretty, but I don't like it. I remember somebody saying to me, this isn't my line, that we don't believe that greater Kedusha leads to greater naivety. That is not our understanding of Kedusha. And we know from Tanakh, and we know from Agadolim, that people can be very, very holy and very, very on the ball. And in fact, they usually are. So uh, I'll acknowledge that it's a beautiful explanation, but I think it's, it's somewhat discomforting to suggest that what that, that story is a metaphor for Yitzchak's piety, making him blind to reality. But he was an Ola Tamima. He did reach a certain level and that effect, that had an effect on him. So according to this Midrashic explanation, the tears from the angels came down onto Yitzchak. Now, we have to go a little bit further to, to examine these tears a bit. Why were they crying? Why were they crying? They should have been rejoicing. Why should they have been rejoicing? Avram was passing the test. Avram was fulfilling the mitzvah of Hashem. How can the angels be upset that Avram's fulfilling the mitzvah of Hashem? So the Ketav Sofer um, has quite a complex answer. I'm not sure I fully understood it. But he's saying the angels were indeed happy that Avraham was fulfilling the mitzvah. But nevertheless, they had a problem. They had a regret. Because at that moment, if Yitzchak's going to be slaughtered, then, then Yaakov would never be born. And who is Yaakov? Yaakov is us. Yaakov is the ancestor of the Jewish people. We are the Bnei Israel. So if the Akedah had gone ahead on time, um, there would be no Yaakov. There would be no us. So the angels are a bit upset about that. But look, so it goes further. Maybe it gets a bit too complex, Lisa, maybe I've if I've understood it. The angels know that if the Akedah doesn't take place, then Yaakov's going to be born. However, who gets born at the same time? Who comes as part of the package? Aesop. Not good. Not good. So the tears do two things at once. The tears are an expression of regret that Yaakov's not going to be born if the Akedah goes ahead, but also... If the Akedah is stalled, as it was, Yaakov's going to be born and Esau's going to be born, which is unfortunate. But those tears, by reducing Yitzchak's sight, enable Yaakov to get the bracha and not Esau. So in other words, the tears solve the problem that Esau's going to be born. Okay, that's Ketav Sofer. I also saw um, in the Nezer HaKodesh, um, not quite sure who he is, that... Um, he deals with another problem, which is, is worth talking about. Does anyone else have a problem with the idea of angels crying and the tears going into Esau Yitzchak's eyes? They're not physical. Very good. This is the problem the Nezah HaKodesh identifies. That how can the angels, which are totally non-physical, have physical tears? So he says you have to understand something about angels. That there's a transmission from Shemayim to Aretz. So what's in Shemayim is something non-physical. 
But by the time it gets down to our land, it, it creates a physical effect. So I think, this is my words, not his. It's not to say that the angels were crying like we cry, but the angels were crying in their non-physical spiritual way, whatever that means, but it causes an effect down here. So you can actually say literally, their spiritual tears turned into physical tears as they get down to earth. Or you can say that it's a bit more metaphorical than that, their spiritual tears create an effect here on earth. And the effect here on earth was Yaakov's sight. Okay, why do we need the third explanation? Sorry, the second explanation is really good because it explains why, Yark, why, why Yitzchak gets the uh, bad sight and Rivka doesn't. Why do you need the third explanation? It seems to be mentioned in relation to his age, but he would have been blind for a long time. Um, by the way, not to if you say he was blind at the time of the Akeda when he was 37, and it's now, uh, he's now 123, yes, so it's a long time later. Uh, if, you, if, if we go with the second explanation, then, um, so is that your question or is that Rashi's question? You're thinking? I'm saying, maybe that's the problem with the second explanation. Um, I didn't think of that, um, but that would be a good problem with the second explanation. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that his eyes became dim at this point. It says, I suppose it does imply, Yitzchak was old and his eyes were dim, right. which suggests that those two are correlated and the Akeda was many years previously. So that would be a question on the second explanation. But the third explanation perhaps explains, well, this is sort of mirror image of the first explanation and our explanation for the first explanation. What we said for the first explanation is to connect it to what went before. The third explanation connects it to what comes after. This is the story of the brachot. Absolutely, from this beginning, it's the story of the brachot. And where does the story begin? What's the first thing we learn about in the beginning of the story of the brachot? Yitzchak's blindness. So we need the third explanation to explain why Yitzchak's blindness is the introduction to the story of Yaakov getting the brachot. So that's the third explanation that Rashi says very nicely, that we're told that they, the reason he got blind was so that Yaakov could get the brachot, which explains nicely um, why this posset comes at the beginning of the story. So that's one way, that's how, what we actually just gone through, by the way, is the marsha, uh, the marsha's explanation of why we need the three explanations. Was something lacking about the third option? Something lacking? Uh, oh, you want to find something lacking, you're right. Um, <laughs> Why we couldn't have just had the third explanation. I didn't see that. Second one's prettiest. So we need the pretty one. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Pasuk Bet. So Yitzhak has called Asaf, and Asaf says, Here I am. And Yitzhak says, Behold, I am old. Lo yadati yom moti. I do not know the day of my death. And then Rashi is going to explain what he means by that. Um, and he gives a slightly complicated explanation. Uh, and, but I'll ask straight away, why does Rashi need to explain Yitzchak saying, I don't know the day, day of my death? Exactly. It's, once you think of it, it stands out as such an obvious question. Nobody knows the day of their death. It's a scary thing. Um, that's why we should always be you know, ready for judgment. Um, I don't want to say something too scary, but that's what we should. 
Okay, anyway, so given that Lo Yodati Yom Moti is a funny thing to say because it's so obvious that he doesn't know the day of his death. So we have the following explanation from Rashi. Omar Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha says, by the way, I've got a sefer, um, which is very, very pilpalistic, um, which explains every time Rashi quotes something in the name of a Tana or an Amora, why Rashi quotes that. And uh, so I thought I'd look here today on why Rashi quotes this on the name of Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha. Um, and it's very, very long and very complex. I didn't really get it all. And I think it's actually uh, a little bit far-fetched. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, by the way, um, is identified by Rashi in the Gemara as the son of Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, who was nicknamed Karach because he was bald, apparently. Um, and the fact that uh, Akiva lived for a long time, but he started off as not uh, on the derech, but then he became on the derech, but he did the shuva. It's all part of this populistic answer of why Rashi quotes it, maybe Rabbi Shuva and Karaka, but I didn't think it was worth trying to understand and share the whole thing. Anyway, I just thought it's just interesting. There certainly is some significance that Rashi sometimes does quote things in the name of the people who said it, and, but most of the time he doesn't. Here he does. I'm Rabbi Shuva and Karaka. Im Megia Adam Laperak Avotav. If a person reaches the age, the, the, literally the chapter of their fathers, which means the age at which their parents died. Yid'ag, they should worry. Five years before and five years after. And Yitzchak was 123. Now, by the way, we're not going to get there tonight or next week or the week after, but at the very end of Parshat Toldot, Rashi has a long explanation and proves, as I said earlier, that Yaakov was 63 at the time of the bracha, and therefore Yitzchak must have been 123. What's significant about 123? So he's just entered his 123rd year. So he's now within five years of Sarah's death, because she died 127. Why is it four years between 123 and 127? Because he's just entered his 123rd. No, he's entered his 124th year, but we, I suppose yeah, yeah, Sarah could have been at the end of 127th year. That's how you get five years. So he's within five years of the death of his mother. Omar, he said, Shema leperek imi animagia. Maybe this five years that I have to worry about relates to the age of the death of my mother. That's what I've reached. And she died at the age of 127. And behold, I am five years close to her time of death. What it means is, therefore, he says, and this is a quote from the pastor, I don't know the day of my death. Maybe it's five years within the death of my mother, and maybe it's five years within the age at which my father died. Incidentally, how old was his father when his father died? 175. 175. And how old was Yitzchak when Yitzchak died? No, Yitzchak. Yitzchak was 180. So he died five years after his father's age. So it like, fits quite nicely. So he's worried five years before his mother. We don't we read that when he reached 170, he was worried again, maybe because he had nothing to do at that point. But he died five years after the death of his father. Now, um, just interesting side point, which is actually going to become relevant. Rashi is going to mention this explicitly a little bit later. 
Yaakov, sorry, Yitzchak, trying very hard to get all those not mixed up. I'm doing, most, I'm doing well most of the time. Yitzchak is calling Esau because he's now reached the moment when he's 123. In other words, what day was this for him? His birthday. And what day was Yitzchak's birthday? How do you know? Um, um, when the spies came. When the, the, angels, spies. Sorry. <laughs> the angels came. The angels came and um, Yitzchak, sorry, Abraham baked them. Well, it, doesn't, it says Ugot. But by the afternoon, uh, that's, the angels had lunch with Abraham. Where did they go for supper? Saddam. And what did Lot cook for them? Matzah. And Rashi says two words. Pesachaya. So we see that the day they were at Abraham's house was Erev Pesach. And what did they prophesy? That Sarah will have a baby. How long hence? Exactly a year later. So Yaakov called, sorry, Yitzchak uh, is having a birthday. He's now 123, Mazel and he calls Asaph to say, it's my birthday. That's why I want to bless you now, because maybe I'm going to die soon, because I'm within five years of my mother's death. And that night is when the brachot gets switched. So that night, when the younger son takes precedence over the older son, when the bachor is thrust aside, is the night of Pesach, which throughout history has been the night when Hashem brings justice to the world and often displaces the powerful in place of the less powerful, or make sometimes explicitly the Bechor is pushed aside or killed so that the uh, injustice in society can be rectified. Would this be the place where it, the idea comes from where you give people blessings on your birthday? I don't know. It, 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 I, I don't know. It could be, it would work quite well because he definitely is going to bless his sons on okay. his birthday. So I, I don't know, but it could be. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Rambam in Perisham Isnaius, um, Idiot Perib Bet Pasuk Tet, says something interesting. He says, I mean, there's in, 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 Rabbi Akiva there in the Mishnah gives lots of things that children get from their parents. And one of them is Shanot, years, which sounds like, and the Rambam says explicitly, that the Peshat in the Mishnah is a child will live to a similar age of their parents, suggesting that because the child is similar to their parents, um, today we would say uh, inherits genetic uh, composition from his parents. So one of the things that is gonna be similar to his parents or might be similar to his parents, let's say, is their longevity, their lifespan. So it sort of uh, gives us support to what we're saying here, which might seem a little bit strange, that people should be aware of the age which their parents died because they, they, they might share a similar sort of lifespan with their parents. Um, okay, I think that's actually, that's it I wanted to say, that the particular thing that you know, Rashi doesn't say explicitly, he's going to say quite soon, is that therefore this whole thing took place on Pesach. And Rashi has explained, lo yodati yom moti, as not meaning, I don't know when I'm going to die, but rather something makes, when you understand it, makes perfect sense. Yom moti is likely to be related to the death of my parents, but lo yadati, I don't know which one. So I don't know whether my death is going to be related to my father's age, or maybe it's going to be related to my mother's age, and that's why I'm worried now. And that is a very nice explanation of lo yadati yomoti, rather than I don't know how long I'm going to live, which is not a good explanation because that is no Kiddush.
Okay, then in Pasuk Gimel, um, Yaakov, sorry, Yitzchak says to Esau, Va'ata, sa na kelecha. Now, the word sa is going to be explained by Rashi. Kelecha, your gear, maybe that would be a good translation. Um, telecha, which is also going to be explained by Rashi, so we'll leave that out. Vekashtecha, and your bow. But say, hasadeh, and go out to the field. Futsudatli, and trap for me, Sayyid, um, some hunting. And that's what Yaakov, uh, sorry, that's what Yitzchak says to Esau. So sa, we don't know what sa means. Kelecha means your, your vessels, your material, your gear, as I said before, because the stuff you need to go out hunting. Telecha, uh, we don't know what it means because Rashi's going to tell us, Kashtecha and your bow. And those are the things you're going to need. So um, some versions of Rashi put Telecha first, his comment on Telecha first which makes sense, even though it's not the first words in the Pasuk that Rashi is talking about. He's going to also, he's going to say Sana. So some have the words of Rashi in the order of the Pasuk. So Rashi on Sana first, and Rashi on Telecha second. We've got a few different texts here. Who's got Sana first? Who, okay, who's got Telecha first? Oh, okay. I'm glad you said that, because otherwise my comment would have sounded a bit silly. I was just about to say, when you finished your sentence, that line starts Okay, thank you very much. Now, um, there's good arguments on both sides. Um, one of the texts is corrupted. One of the texts has gone wrong. We don't know which one. Um, normally, Rashi comments in order. And if he doesn't, there's a special significance to it. It makes sense for him to explain Telecha first before Sana, for reasons which will become very clear when we do that. So says Rashi on Telecha, we'll, we'll, we'll follow that um, approach. And we say Telecha means your sword, Shederech Litlotah because it's the way to tola, to hang it. So you walk around and your sword is hanging by your side. So telecha, I suppose, is literally something that hangs. Says Rashi, it is your sword. So now the description of the stuff that he's taking is kelecha, telecha, v'kashtecha. Your kelecha, your general bits and pieces, your sword and your bow. Um, there are other opinions. The Ibn Ezra says telecha means your quiver. Good word, quiver. What does a quiver mean? Where you keep the arrows. Oh, very good. Everyone knows it. It's not a word we use very often, to be honest. Um, and that sort of fits, by the way, because telecha comes before kashtecha. So your arrows and your bow sort of make sense. Rashi obviously understands that when Yitzchak says to Esau, take your bow, it means your bow and arrows, because a bow without arrows is not much use. Now we know that Telecha is your sword. Now we can go back to Sa, because Yitzchak's instruction is Sa na Telecha Telecha. So Sa is something you're going to do with your vessels and your sword. Says Rashi, what does Sa na mean? So this is a Rashi which explains the word Loshan Hashchaza. It's an expression of sharpening. Shin chet zayin is to sharpen. Ka'oto shashaninu, as we've learned in a Mishnah. Now, sometimes uh, Rashi's first choice, I, I think is a general rule, will always be to find the same word in the Chumash. Second choice will be in Nach. Third choice will be in the Mishnah. If you can't find it anywhere in the Chumash, and I didn't check in the concordance, um, but I, I, I would be surprised if this occurs anywhere else in the, in, in the Chumash. 
because Rashi finds a support in the Mishnah. And the Mishnah in Beitza, which talks about the laws of Yontuf, says, Ein et hasakim. Do not sharpen a knife, aval masia al But you can, um, well, sharpen it um, on the back of another knife, on the back of its literally its partner. Okay, how do you sharpen a knife? So there's two ways. You get a special sharpening item. Um, uh, there's a great word in English. Excellent, wet. How do you spell wet? W-H-E-T. <laughs> oh yeah, well yeah, it was yesterday's quiz, yes. Lahavdil uh, al in the in the Rashi share, I'm quoting the age quiz from Shabbos. But um, yes, um, so the word wet appeared there. W-H-E-T means to sharpen a knife. And you have a special whetstone, which is the name of a suburb in London, which is probably named after a whetstone, a special device designed for sharpening knives. The second way to do it, and the Mishnah in Beitza says, you have to make a shinnery. You don't sharpen a knife in the normal way on stone. You sharpen a knife in the second best way, which is to write to sharpen one knife by rubbing it against the other. So if you get two knives and rub them against the other, they'll end up sharper. So the Mishnah says, uh, it's interesting, look heavily what Rashi's doing. Rashi says, sa is a lotion of chashchaza, uh, an expression of wetting, sharpening. And then he says, if you look in the Mishnah, we find hashchaza as in ein mashkizin et hasakin, aval masia al gabechaverta. So sa turns out to be, if according to the Mishnah, not actually sug aleph type of sharpening, but sug bet type of sharpening. So Rashi sort of contradicts himself by saying it's an expression of sharpening. And then he says, if you look at the Mishnah, sa is exactly what is not hashaza. See the problem? But what it means is it's a second rate type of hashaza. So you can ask why perhaps did Yitzchak if Yitzchak's learned the Mishnah in Beitzah, why did Yitzchak tell Esau to sharpen his knife in the second best way and not the best way? Now, why does he want him to sharpen his knife at all, by the way? Rashi's actually going to spell it out, but you might wonder. Why does he want to sharpen his knife at all? To shech the animal. But why does it have to be sharp? Yes, it has to be sharp. And if it's not sharp, it's not a kosher shechita. So Yitzchak says, well, we'll see. I'll let Rashi tell the next bit. But it could be that if you sharpen one knife against another, you'll get a sharp knife and you'll have less chance of breaking off a bit of a knife. Um, I don't know much about sharpening knives, um, um, but it could be, but if you sharpen the knife in the very thorough way, you might end up with a broken bit. You might end up with a bit of the knife chipped off, chipped away. And the bit of a knife chipped away is really bad. It's a very bad thing for shita because it renders the shita not kosher. So it suggested uh, that um, if we like take all these pieces together, that Rashi is saying that sa na means a type of sharpening, not the best type of sharpening, but the second best type of sharpening, and it will make the knife sharp enough for shechita, and there's less chance of the knife actually being nifgam, blemished, and therefore it's actually even better for shechita to sharpen the knife in this way. Oh, can I add to that, the Mishnah we're just quoting says we do not own a knife of an English uh, festival. Yes. Given it was Pesach, maybe they're following the Mishnah here. Uh, it's Erev Pesach. Uh, but that might be very clever. 
Um, obviously, it's it's predicated on the Avot keeping all the mitzvot and keeping all the obscure mitzvot with the Rabbanon about uh, the distinctions they made for between uh, Yom Tov and another day. Um, but I think if we're going to be precise, this actually is taking place on Erev Pesach. But it's a very nice idea. <laughs> okay. Rashi goes on to say, Chadeid Sakincha Ushchot Yafeh. Sharpen your knife and shecht well so you don't feed me Nevela. What's Nevela? Nevela is an animal which has been incorrect, which has died uh, through a process other than shechita or um, through improper shechita. So if the knife is not sharp enough, then you'll be feeding me um, non-kosher food. Please don't do that. I'm Yitzhak. I like to eat kosher food. So please sharpen your knife. Now, um, why do you have any questions with Yitzchak instructing Asaf on this occasion to sharpen his knife? Okay. Or again, I think it's just remains so much as like his death being Um, I did realize as I was saying it when uh, Yak when Yitzchak calls Esav, um, those words, first of all, Abraham says in to Hashem. Um, Yitzchak speaks to Abraham as they're climbing the mountain, and Hashem Abraham replies, Bani, my son. Um, that's the sort of close reading approach, um, which does suggest some sort of echoes of the Akeda. Um, it's not Rashi's approach. Um, and I think if we say that it was, how many years later did we work out? Um, 123 minus 37, 84? Yes, did I get it right? No, no, 86. Yes, I think that's right. 86. 86, I used but, but I hear what you say. It sounds, since we know so little about Yitzchak, it's perhaps interesting. We know he was nearly shechted on the Akeda, at the Akeda, on the Mizbech, and we find him almost after he's dug a few wells. The next episode is he's talking about his death. You're suggesting that we can see a continuation of one into the other. Sudali you know, it was an idol that was found to, you know, be in his own place. That, like, that's the food that he's come to allow. Right, what are you talking about? The, when he's requesting that Asaf bring him meat. Yes. Like, with an animal stuck in the bush. Ah, because... Saved him, like, um, is that what he was appreciating? I mean, it's very, like... Okay. So you're saying that part of his Akeda consciousness is that he was swapped for a ram, and that's why he wants Sayyid. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Okay, there's, 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 I think that's a fertile scene to mine. To, but it's not Russian. 
Okay, um, but I did ask, I asked, why is it a problem? Is it perplexing that Yitzchak asked today for Esau to make sure his knife is sharp? Because um, why did Yitzchak love Esau? Kitsayid Bapiv. So Rashi gave two explanations there, one of which was Esau provided the game, the captured meat, and Yitzchak enjoyed eating it. So Esau's been providing meat for his father for a long, long time. So the Mephoshim asked, why does Rashi say that Dafka today, he is particular about um, making sure that Esau sharpens his knives? So there's a few interesting explanations. The Vilna Gaon says, um, because this is a particular mitzvah from Yitzchak to Esau, this is a special request from Yitzchak to Esau. And what was the midah or what was the mitzvah that we want that we know that Esau did well? Kibbut of the Ain. So the Vilna Gaon says, maybe this is a little bit stretched, that Yitzchak is worried today that when Esau has got a special mitzvah from his father, his desire to show kibbut of the aim or kibbut av rather will will make him rush. He'll be in such a hurry to perform the mitzvah for his father that he won't be as careful as usual for him to um, do things properly and shecht properly. Um, or you can say that Yitzchak's always worried that maybe Esau isn't performing the mitzvah properly, but there's a chazaka, there's a presumption that he is, so he normally eats the food. But today he wants, Yitzchak wants everything to be done, lechatchila, because this food is actually going to be important, because it's the food is going to trigger the bracha. So he wants the food to be dafka perfect. So he doesn't want to rely on a presumption, a chazaka, that Esau's going to shecht because that's what he normally does. He's going to shecht okay, because he normally shecht's okay. Because he wants this food to be perfect, he wants it to be kosher lechatchila, or kosher mahadrin. Um, therefore, he gives the special instruction to Esau today, because he wants the food to be super duper kosher. Yes? Just quickly, is this, is this kind of passage that economized to another passage where he doesn't mention sharpen? Like, why would, why not he suggest that he would just kind of always mention sharpening? Um, well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, okay. I, what we're learning now is like a point within a point within a point. Yeah. But it's just, there's a few answers, a few explanations for it. So I thought it was interesting. Um, I, you can ask the question the other way, I suppose. If, if he always asked Aesop to sharpen his knives, then why would the Torah spell out that it's doing it here? If the yeah. Torah is telling us today, he asked him to sharpen his knife, it sounds like today is exceptional for some reason. Hence the question. And the third explanation, which I think is very clever, is to suggest that maybe Yitzchak normally shechted his own meat. So how would it work? It doesn't say that Esau brought meat, dafka, to his father, already cooked. It says he brought sayit, he brought hunting. So maybe he bought the animal which he'd hunted and then Yitzchak, who wanted to be particular about his own kashrut, would shech the animal himself. But now he can't. Why can't he? Because his eyes are going. So this, by the way, would suggest contrary to the second explanation. So put that on one side, that his eyes have been fine up till now. But Dafka today, his eyes are going. He can't shech anymore. So he tells Esau to make sure you do your shechita properly. Want to get nitpicky about Hilchot 
then like what does he have with bow or sword? Ah, ah. ah, very good. Okay, very good question. Can you shecht an animal with an arrow? Yes, you can if you do it in the right way. Gemorin Chulin, which is a source for laws of Shechita to talk about it. Um, there's all sorts in Gemara Chulin, all sorts of obscure ways of doing Shechita. There's a famous idea of a, a wheel. You put a knife at the bottom of a wheel and you put the animals going round and round like a, like a water wheel and their throats come down and hit the knife. Is Yeah, yeah, okay, sorry, it's a bit gruesome. Um, um, that's one example. And if you send the arrow just the right spot, not to the heart, to the trachea and the esophagus, and it cuts through both those pipes, which is what Shita has to do. Uh, they're called the simanim. It has to actually, well, I'm putting my hand on my neck. Yeah. Um, so is uh, our medical student. <laughs> um, if the arrow, it's, it, it's, it's one of those more theoretical discussions in the Gemara, I think. But if the arrow pierced the trachea and the esophagus in just the right way, with just the right pressure, it would be a kosher shechita. So that's why this, uh, it's a good question, but you might wonder about the arrows. Obviously, um, assuming that Yitzchak keeps halacha, which is, we, we have established that because that's what Rashi said, then the, he wants kosher meat and he does tell Aesop to take his bow, presumably arrows as well. So there is, a, fortunately it works, there is a way of shechting an animal in a kosher way with a bow and arrow. And a sword, no problem. I mean, a sword, if it's sharp enough, will do fine. As long as it's, uh, uh, Aesop knows what he's doing. Okay, Pastor. Yes. You may. Just because you mentioned before about how the second comment we gave wouldn't suffice with the eyes. Anyway, the third answer we said we didn't have a uh, deficiency. Yes. But I think it's just a very logical deficiency about Jacob shouldn't, uh, so that Jacob should take the blessings. Wasn't all for Aesop. It doesn't pass up to Scorn as we just spoke about now. But we're saying that that um, his eyes were. Dimmed, if you will, or whatever. Yeah. But he cried, Esav, but not like the Apostle continues talking about Esav. So, how so maybe the deficiency is like that Yaakov takes the blessings? Isn't the whole thing about Esav? Like, oh, I don't know. Well, except we know that it's because the eyes were dim that Yaakov's able to um, take the blessings which, ya which Yitzchak had planned for Esav. So, um, if I've understood you right, I'm not quite sure that works because the story is starts with. Yitzchak giving the instruction to Esau, but because of his blindness, Yaakov's going to end up getting the brothers. So it's sort of that that, is, that fits with what Rashi said. Okay, Pasuk Dalad, there's no Rashi, but the Pasuk says, Asa li matamim, and make for me tasty things, asher ahavti, which I love, beheviyo li, and bring them to me, beachela, and I will eat, baavur tevarachecha nafshi beterem amut. In order my soul will bless you before I die. Pasuk Hay says, Rivka shamat, Yitzchak el Esav. Yitzchak, sorry, Rivka heard when Yitzchak was speaking to Esav, Beno, his son. And Esav went to the field to trap, trapping to bring. Um, just by the way, this isn't Rashi, but I'll just mention, this is Emek Davar, by the way, it's fascinating discussion on Yitzchak and Rivka. I, I'm always struck by this, so I'll present it very quickly because it's not Rashi. Rivka hears Yitzchak plan to give the brachas to Esau. And, Yitzchak, and, and Rivka has a different plan. Rivka thinks it should go to Yaakov. What does Rivka not do at this point? 
What's the most logical thing the Rivka should do? What? Tell Yitzchak. Rivka should pop into Yitzchak and say, you know, you're planning to get the brachas to Esau. Can we chat about this, hubby? Let, let's, because uh, maybe there's like a, a, another way of doing this, but she doesn't. The whole thing is done by subterfuge. So the Emek Devara says that from the moment Rivka fell off her camel, she was in awe of Yitzchak. She's much younger than him. He comes from the house of Abraham. She comes from the house of Betuel. And she sees him. Where, what does she see him doing? Davening. And she falls off her camel in awe and says to Emek Devara, from that moment, she cannot speak to him. It is a dysfunctional family. He doesn't use that word, but that's what he means. It's a dysfunctional family. And the result is the brachot have to be taken by Yaakov through subterfuge, which was Hashem's plan all along for reasons that the Amic Devar explains elsewhere. Anyway, uh, let's look at Rashi on hay. On the words, Latsud Sayed Lahavi, to trap, trapping, to bring. It says Rashi, Mahu Lahavi. Rashi spells out the question. What does it mean, Lahavi? Why is that a question? What else is Asav going to do with his trapping? But if not to bring it, to bring it to Yitzchak. It's obvious he's going to bring it to Yitzchak. So if it's obvious that he's going to Lahavi, then why does the Pasuk need to say Lahavi? And the answer says Rashi, Im lo yavi min If he doesn't find things to be trapped, now, Rashi doesn't say explicitly, but the implication is obviously things which are hefka, things which don't belong to anyone. They're running wild. If Aesop can't find any of that, then he will bring from what is stolen, which obviously is not what Yitzchak wants. Yitzchak is concerned about kashrut, and he's certainly concerned about making sure that the food that he brings is not stolen. So what does it mean, lahavi? Says Rashi, it means that Esau will bring from the stolen stuff if he can't find unstolen stuff. Now, what seems to be happening is Rashi is understanding lahavi being a superfluous word in a way that Chazal often understand words, usually more in a halachic sense than in a narrative sense, but with the sense of what the Gemara will often say, and Rashi will say in other parts of the Torah, mikol makom, whatever. Um, often, um, it, there's a superfluous word, usually in a halachic context, and the Chazal will say, in other words, that extra word means under all circumstances. Uh, I can't think of a good example right now. We're coming to the end of the year anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to trouble myself to think of a good example. But it happens many, many times that there's like a, a single case described in the Torah with a superfluous word, and Chazal, and sometimes Rashi on the Chumash, will say, mikom, mikom. in other words, it's to include all circumstances. So lahavi here being a superfluous word means not just he'll bring it, but he'll bring it from all possible options. So either he'll bring it from Sayyid or he'll bring it from non-Sayyid, i.e. from Gezel. Now, this also, there's a couple of things further to say about this, I think, is number one is we're seeing that what Aesov hears from his father, Aesov embellishes. His father says, make sure it's strictly kosher which clearly implies make sure it's strictly legit and it's not stolen. And Aesop thinks to himself, yeah, okay, thanks dad, I'll do, we'll see what happens and it might be stolen. But it's also worth pointing out who is speaking at this point? Who is speaking at this point? Or who is, um, who, what, sorry, that's not, no, it's not somebody speaking, but it's Rivka 
hearing. Rivka is the one who's got a true sense of what's going on. Rivka hears that Esau is instructed by Yitzchak, but Rivka knows better than Yitzchak what Esau's going to do. As we learned earlier, um, Yitzchak loves Esau, Rivka loves Yaakov. Now, again, I don't want to say that Yitzchak is naive, but certainly the simple reading is that Yitzchak has a different impression of Esau from the reality. After all, Rashi himself said that Esau tricks Yitzchak by asking him questions, how do I take myself from straw and some salt? And Yitzchak, Rashi doesn't say it, but Rashi implies that Yitzchak falls for it. So Yitzchak assumes that Esau will go and get kosher properly hefka food, Rivka knows that that won't necessarily be the case. So Rivka hears that Yitzchak speaks to Esau, and Rivka sees that Esau goes off lahavi, which Rashi means means he won't necessarily do what Yitzchak required. Okay, we will stop there, and next week, Yemir Hashem, we will carry on from Pasuk Bal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.